20th. And so uh, to get into the sermon this morning, uh, this sermon is, is, is a great one to jump back into. I say that a little bit facetiously because uh, what, what we're going to talk about, where I feel the Lord leading us, uh, is, is somewhat of a very tender topic for me. It hits really close to home. This is one of those sermons that I preach where, I mean, there's nothing about uh, the perfect holiness of God that I can look at and say that I've achieved it. But this is one of those where I feel a little farther away from it than usual. Um, And I just want to kind of set the stage that if you're anything like me and you struggle with what we're going to talk about today, I just want you to know that you're not alone, that I'm seeking the grace of God just as you are in this particular issue. And prayerfully, as we go through this sermon, we will find that together. Amen. And so I'm going to be talking today about anxiety. Um, Anxiety is something that I wrestle with mightily. Um, Social anxiety, internal anxiety. Um, all of those things. I do. And um, this is something, as I talk about it today, that I pray that we all can find together, especially if you're anything like me and you struggle with it. And the main idea I want us to, to um, get from the sermon this morning is that trust in God's faithfulness, that we would trust in God's faithfulness and not in the fallacy of control. Amen. I want us to trust in God's faithfulness and not in the fallacy of control. There's an old uh, Chinese proverb that goes, the opposite of pleasure is not pain, but anxiety. And when I first heard that, I thought to myself, that doesn't sound right. But then I I thought about my days of playing basketball. And if you've played a sport at all, you learn that injury is a part of sport, right? You get hurt. But you can enjoy a sport pretty significantly if you're hurt, especially if you're still winning, right? You can push through it. But if you're incredibly anxious, it's hard to enjoy anything. If you're playing a game and you're incredibly anxious, I've experienced that as well, the only thing you can keep thinking is, I can't wait till this is over. So the opposite of pleasure is not pain, it's anxiety. And my prayer today, again, is that we can find the cure for anxiety from the Lord and his word. So this is John chapter 9, verses 1 through 13, and then 28 through 41. This is a long passage. I thought about cutting it down, but I just didn't want us to miss the story. And we're not going to touch on every single verse here because it's so much. And I just really feel like the Lord wants us to laser into those first couple of verses. So we're going to stick there for the most part this morning, but we're going to read the whole story. And my prayer is that even in reading, the Lord will speak to us through his holy word. So beginning in verse one of John chapter nine, it says, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And this is Jesus speaking. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground. He made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. 
His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought, to the, they brought the man to the Pharisees, the man who had been born blind. Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now this is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of the opening of the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus says, you have now seen him. I'll say it again. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? Jesus says, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you see, your guilt remains. And this is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me, brothers and sisters. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for this particularly powerful story of where you step in to this world you created and do things that no amount of reason can explain other than the fact that you are indeed God Almighty who's come to set all things right. Lord, as I endeavor to preach this sermon today about anxiety and giving up control and trusting in you, my prayer, Lord Jesus, is that indeed you would grant us your grace and your help to experience peace. I want to pray for every person here who struggles with anxiety, who looks at the world and sees things reeling out of control and panics, in your mighty name, Lord God, would you grant us this day peace as we see your love and your goodness and your power through your word this morning. Let your word settle in our hearts as truth. Grant me clarity and conviction in preaching what I sense that you've given me and let it accomplish in every heart and every mind exactly what you sent your word to do. We give you the honor, the glory, and the praise for hearing our prayer and answering according to your will. For all that you are and all that you do. Thank you, Lord. 
In Jesus' name. Amen, Father. And amen. And so um, the context of our passage this morning is that Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple, the, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, and they come across a man who John, the gospel writer, tells us has been born blind since birth. Now, we're not sure um, how the disciples knew just by looking at this man that he'd been born blind since birth, but somehow they knew this was the case, as John tells us. And the disciples, their first response to seeing this man who they know has been born blind is to ask a very, very strange question, in my opinion. They ask, who sinned in order that this man was born blind? Was it him or was it his parents? In other words, for the disciples, in their mind, somebody had to sin for this man to be born with this specific issue. And the question is really strange for a couple of different reasons. The first is, who asks questions like this when they see people struggling, right? Like, you see someone, you ask, who sinned, right? You may ask, like, what happened that he was blind? Right. Um, is there a health condition or or something like that? Did something happen to his mother while she was pregnant? Was there a disease or something? But who sinned? It's a very interesting question to ask. The second reason the question is strange is because what you may miss in this passage is that there's the assumption that somehow this man could have sinned. To create his own issue from birth. Oddly enough, at this time, there was a belief that people could potentially sin in the womb, thereby creating something like this particular condition. So the question is, did he sin in the womb and therefore is being punished by having been born blind? And the belief behind these questions and the idea of something as preposterous as prenatal sin is something that I've coined Deuteronomic theology. Funny story behind that. The first words of the first sermon I ever preached at Redeemer Community Church in 2015 were the words Deuteronomic theology. That's how I start. You remember that, Drew? Yeah, yeah, it's right there. First words. And I'd never forget the first stares I got. Like, what are you talking about? Just like that. Just like that, Lily. Just like that. But Deuteronomic theology, or the idea that God gives good things when we do good things, and that he gives bad things when we do bad things. Another way I've heard it called is the law of linearity. Now, in short, I'm going to say that this line of thinking is false, it's unbiblical, and we'll talk more about that in a second. But what I learned as I prepared this sermon is that the reason behind Deuteronomic theology or this law of linearity, it isn't a belief that's coming from the Bible or even from what's true. It comes from anxiety. It stems from anxiety. You see, anxiety is ultimately panic at the thought of or even the reality of a lack of control. And for the disciples, 
attaching suffering like being born blind to something that can be controlled like sinning or not sinning makes this kind of suffering easier for them to digest. If they can know that the cause of this man's blindness was something that they could control, right, even the control of a prenatal child, they can just just cling it, just, just attach it to something that someone can control, then they could breathe a sigh of relief and rest in knowing that this man deserves to be born blind. And that only people guilty of such sin will experience such suffering. So now they have the answer. They can avoid suffering by avoiding sinning, at least whatever sin this man commits. And so they want to know from Jesus, what is the sin that this man committed so that we can stay far from it, so that we can be in control? Well, against this backdrop of this very prevalent mindset in this day, Jesus' response is revolutionary because it shatters every framework that these men have for understanding suffering. Remember, they don't ask if someone sinned. For them, that's a given. Somebody sinned. The question for them is who sinned? And Jesus' response shatters their framework. He says nobody. Nobody sinned so that this man was born blind. And here's the even crazier thing that Jesus says. Not only was his blindness not caused by sin, Jesus says that his blindness is actually a part of God's plan. You mean that God's plan has something, could have, include something as terrible as, as a man's blindness? Yes. Jesus says in verse 3, he says, listen, he says, this happened so that, in order that, the works of God might be displayed in him. This was God's plan for this man's life from birth. From birth. And friends, what I think this story does for us as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ in 2023 is shift the, par the paradigm in our minds for when we suffer or when we deal with difficult things in this life. You see, when we encounter difficulty, we're often tempted to try and figure out why, right? Anxiety or the need for control, the need to figure it all out, compels us to ask questions like, why me, God? Or what did I do to deserve this? We're tempted to start rolling through the hard drive of our minds. I was going to say, as I wrote this originally, the Rolodex of our minds, but I realized that probably no one would know what I was talking about. But we roll through the hard drive of our minds to figure out what sin or mistake may have caused the difficulty that we're experiencing at that time. And what we're trying to do, brothers and sisters, if we're honest, is try to find some explanation for suffering that makes sense so that life doesn't seem so arbitrary or futile and out of control. 
We want something that we can grab. We want something that we can sink our teeth into. Just so that life seems all the more manageable, all the more able for us to mold and make it what we need it to be to continue. But here is the reality, brothers and sisters. The idea of our control is a fallacy. We are not nearly as in control as we'd like to believe we are. We can eat as healthily as we'd like, and I think we should eat healthy. We can exercise as much as we possibly can, and I think we should exercise and take care of ourselves. But here's the reality, brothers and sisters. One day, all of our bodies are going to break down. And for many of us, it's going to be for reasons without explanation. Friends, we can do everything we can to raise our children right, to raise them in the ways of the Lord, to raise them to be productive citizens, to raise them to be intelligent, to go to Harvard or whatever it is. We can raise our children to the greatest and best of our abilities, follow every book, know every psychology, but here's the reality. Ultimately, what they choose to do and who they become is outside of our control. And the solution to lacking control isn't in believing that life is futile and that suffering is arbitrary. The answer is not in coming up with preposterous reasons for suffering like prenatal sin. No, the solution to lacking control is finding, is, is found in recognizing exactly what Jesus says about the suffering of this man who was born blind that this thing, whatever it is, is happening so that somehow, in some way, the works of God might be displayed in us. So the question, brothers and sisters, when we find ourselves suffering, when we find things reeling out of our control, is not what have I done, but what is he doing? I'll say that again. The question is not what have I done, but what is he doing? And the great thing about this, brothers and sisters, is that Romans chapter 8, verse 28 promises that whatever he's doing, he's doing it for good. Whatever he's doing, he's doing it for good. As it says, and we know that all things work together for the good. God works for the good. That was old King Jimmy. I was just going back into the hard drive of my mind. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So, brothers and sisters, whatever difficult thing we face, God has assured us that he is using this thing to display his works, his glory through that thing and in us. Amen. Is this helpful to you, brothers and sisters, this morning? And I just want to say really quickly something about this idea of sin being the cause for our suffering. Consequences for the things that we do wrong is real. Okay? This is real. You know, the, the, the person sitting in prison for a crime that they did commit, they are suffering because of something that they've done wrong. That is real. However, for the Christ follower, we believe that all suffering 
as a punishment from God for sin has already been subsumed or absorbed by, the, by our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. So that whenever we are suffering, we don't look at it. We have no need to look at it and say God is punishing. Because whatever punishment he'd reserved for you has already been spent on our Lord Jesus Christ, friends. So that's one question we can put away. That's one thing we can put aside. We, don't, we have no need to worry about that. Anytime you feel like God is punishing you, anytime you feel like God is spanking you or whooping you, all you need is to look at the cross. For Jesus took every whoop. With, <laughs> that is some bad English. Jesus took every lash in our place. That's better English. Jesus has taken every bit of punishment in our place. So it's fruitless to try and figure out if God is punishing for our sins because Jesus has already bore our punishment. So suffering, even for the Christian who's dealing with natural consequences, even for the Christian who's come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and happens to be sitting in prison for a crime they commit, even he or she can be assured that God is not angry, nor is he punishing, but instead he is being glorified in and through what we are experiencing in that moment. I do want to say that God will get your attention if you're stubborn, though. And if you feel like God maybe, as one, one pastor said to me one time, you feel like God is hitting you up over the head about something, you may need repentance. We all do. Amen? But God's not angry. And so this is what this man experiences for himself as Jesus goes to the man. And I want you guys to see this. I want you to understand this because I think it's lost when we read it as Americans and we read it in our context today. This man is what? He was born what? Blind. This means that he has never done what? He's never seen. He's never seen anything. He's never seen a person, never seen a tree, a building, anything, right? The story doesn't tell us that he asks anything. The story says disciples look and say, hey, this man has been born blind. We don't know how he knows that. This man has been born blind they ask Jesus the question. Jesus says, well, he's, this has happened to him so that the works of God might be shown in and through him. And then what does Jesus do? The story tells us that the man is sitting there blind. He ain't seeing nothing. And Jesus goes over to him. This may seem disgusting. We're going to talk about it. He spits in the dirt, makes mud, and slaps it in the guy's eyes. What do you think this guy's experience at that moment? Like, who's that? Who just did? Who just did that? Here I am just sitting, minding my business, and someone slaps mud in my eyes. And not only that, then Jesus tells him, says, now go and wash in the pool. And so you can imagine the man's like, okay, <laughs> you know, this guy done put mud in my eyes and told me to go wash. I don't know what I did. And he goes and he washes. And then it says that he comes back seeing. But before you're grossed out by the spitting in the mud, it's a beautiful thing that Jesus does. When Jesus spits in that ground and makes mud, Jesus is reaching all the way back in Genesis. 
and he's going all the way back and taking of the creative power of the God of Genesis. And what he is doing with this mud as he smears it on the man's eyes is he is giving to this man that part of his creation that he has lacked since birth. Jesus is essentially, as the God of all creation, creating from this man, for this man, working eyes. Is that not amazing to you? This is what Jesus is doing with this mud. Jesus is essentially creating working eyes that this man did not receive in the womb. Jesus is redeeming a portion of the fall of creation. And please don't miss the significance here, brothers and sisters. The glory of God is not found in the healing, but in the man's encounter with Jesus and then in his testimony of the Savior. Hear this. Healing is not always God's plan, but God's glory always is. Healing is not always in God's plan, but God's plan always is. So Jesus tells him, go wash in the pool. He comes back seeing. But for some reason, the people who witnessed this were mad about it. Today, we just call them haters. They was just hating. And so they bring him before the Pharisees, like a tribunal, to bring a case, cases against him. And the Pharisees were these religious leaders and opponents of Jesus. And they bring his parents before him, too, to figure out if this man is telling the truth about having been born blind, because who would know best how he was born except his parents? And they want to know, how is he now seeing? And he tells them with all honesty, he says, listen, a man who you call Jesus, because I don't know who he is, he put mud on my eyes, he told me to go wash in a pool, and then I was able to see. And the Pharisees chide him, and they call him a sinner, and they call Jesus a sinner, and they make all kinds of crazy accusations against the man. But I love the man's response in verse 25, which we didn't read. He says this, he says, listen, whether or not this man was a sinner, I don't know. Let me tell you what I do know. I was blind, but now I see. Do with that what you will. Brothers and sisters, the power of our witness is in the testimony of God's faithfulness to us in the difficult seasons of our life. Friends, it's easy. It's easy to tell people God is good while, you, while your life is great. That's very easy. It's another thing to look somebody in the face while you're going through it and really believe it in your heart and say God is good. The power of our witness is in the testimony of God's faithfulness to us in the difficult seasons of our life. The power of our witness is in our testimony of God meeting us and keeping us and strengthening us and comforting us in difficult seasons. Friends, here's what I learned. Anxiety is at an all-time high in our world. It is at an all-time high, and there's a lot of reason for it. I don't know if you've Watch the news recently. This place is pretty messed up. It's pretty, pretty terrible. But I believe, brothers and sisters, that as the world looks for peace, they should not have to look any further than Jesus' followers. They should not have to look any further than Christians. When they see us, brothers and sisters, 
I pray that they don't see a people who are given to anxiety, clinging to artificial means of control, numbing ourselves with the stuff that doesn't truly help in the long run. Instead, I pray that they see the works of God being displayed in us. I pray that they see people who have peace because they are trusting in the God who is working all things for good. Friends, I pray this for myself. Because what I read in this Bible, brothers and sisters, that this is the peace that the world does not give. And this is the peace that the world cannot take away. Friends, what I read in my Bible is that this is the peace that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, this is the peace that we ought to offer to the world. Friends, when the stuff hits the fan, the world should look and see Christians standing ten toes down, firm on solid ground. This is the peace that is promised us. And this is the peace I pray that we will exude in the turmoil of this world. Trusting in God's faithfulness and not in the fallacy of our own control. Let's pray, brothers and sisters. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for your word this morning. And Lord, I just pray that it might land. God, it's hard to preach, but I pray in your mercy that it's a little easier to actually happen. May we have peace and trust give you the glory and the honor. In Jesus' name, amen.